0: This is Kmo
1: ah, hello sir hello sir good to talk to you it's been uh, it's been what about nine ten months since we last spoke I think
0: yeah you know I wasn't quite sure how long it was so I did a search uh, and I found the episode and it aired in January of this year
1: I think it was the first maybe the first episode you did for January that was um that was yeah my recollection but it could be it could have been the second I'm not sure. Uh, well, anyway, let me introduce the format to you, and uh, let me introduce you, and then we'll we'll get talking. So, the general format is it's just an open conversation. This call's being recorded. Uh, we touch on a wide variety of topics. You can change the direction of the conversation. You can uh, ask questions or add additional commentary if you want. And, yeah, it's just friendly and open, basically. I started recording this podcast with a fellow called Heron Stone, and um, I'm not sure if you've heard any of the prior Uh, stone eight recordings have you
0: i have read the descriptions of them but i'm in a a place where i'm rather impoverished in terms of internet bandwidth so podcasts are hard for me to get at okay
1: so the um the background discussion associated with using um a pseudonym or I i don't know what what one would call kmo specifically is that we basically made a decision early on in the piece that we weren't um we weren't going to we'd prefer people to use their uh given names um, and it was a kind of mutual decision in your case I mean I I guess a majority of the folk who know you on Facebook know your your real name and I think the reason that you provided me with regards to a a PBS TV show um, that I didn't really know about didn't strike me but I mean if you want to be known solely as KMO um, but I actually quite like your name and I'd like to use your name if possible Um, but it's your call.
0: Well, my podcast is published as KMO, and my book, if you search Amazon.com for Kevin O'Connor, you won't find my book, but if you search for the author KMO, you will find it.
1: Okay. But are you happy for me to call you Kevin in this format?
0: I prefer KMO, but if, if you know, you've got a, a philosophical issue with, with pseudonyms, then... You know, you're
1: welcome to call me, Gavin. Well, I mean, let's explore this because I think this is an interesting this is an interesting topic and mindset. Because certainly, my philosophical objection to pseudonyms is firstly, it gives the appearance to an external observer who may not know who you are or uh, who anyone else who uses a, a pseudonym is that there is something marginally underhanded going on, and I think. Mm-hmm. My perspective is, certainly with regards to the stuff that you do, that that's not applicable, and I'd much rather refer to you as as Kevin in this format. The other thing is that I think you have an international listener base, and the point that you made with regards to the fellow on, I think, this old house on PBS, of your podcast listeners, do you get a sense... I mean, probably there is a percentage that would be PBS watchers, I would imagine. Um, I mean, you certainly use the PBS model in terms of kind of funding for your podcast. <laughs> But um, the, uh, my impression, however, was that probably you have a slightly larger international listener base and probably people that wouldn't know who who the other Kevin O'Connor was.
0: It's possible, although I never use my real name on the podcast. I'm, I'm well aware that somebody can find it very easily, but for the, the purposes of the podcast, I, I maintain that sort of, um, I don't want to call it a fiction, but it's sort of a pretense. It's a very thin pretense, but it's one that I maintain consistently.
1: Kevin O'Connor on Facebook, as you exist on Facebook, you are both KMO and Kevin O'Connor in that context.
0: Yes, yes, it's it's an odd mixture of people who are my friends on Facebook.
1: <laughs> very good, very good. So I think there are there are a number of topics. I mean, when I when I appeared uh, on your podcast, the Sea Realm, we were discussing a wide variety of topics that kind of focused down on uh, machine intelligence amongst other things. But your podcast covers so many different issues. The one that I wanted to talk to you about initially, if, if you have the time, is September 11th, because this is something that I've listened to, I don't know, I want to say roughly 50 of your podcasts, maybe give or take 20. Uh, and there is a lot of implicit reference to September 11th in terms of a variety of factors, but someone coming to the conversation, even someone who has, you know, relative experience and interest in reading, I still, the, the implicit reference to September 11th with kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I, I still couldn't get any understanding as a listener. So do you feel comfortable talking about September 11th as an idea and, and maybe a little bit more about your own particular views associated with that? Certainly.
0: Yeah, we can talk about anything you like. It's, okay. it's perfectly
1: fine with me. So let's start with September 11th. Then, I mean, in terms of the matters of fact versus the way that the things were reported, what what is your diversion with regards to the the official report associated with September 11th, which I guess is the the government's bound version, uh, and and the way the way that you see things actually occurring.
0: Well, I would want to be very careful to um, to not have anybody not say anything that is going to associate me, you know, rather explicitly in the minds of, of your listeners with September 11th. It is not my issue, and I have vowed to do a September 11th show once a year on the episode that falls closest to September 11th, and I have come to dread that show because there are people who live and breathe. 9-11, 9-11, and I can't keep up with them. You know, the, the conspiracy theories change rapidly. People who seem like they are credible voices in the 9-11 truth movement go crazy and become just obvious radio lunatics. And so it's not something that I want to be associated with, but I still do the annual 9-11 show because I don't want to be cowed into submission just by the threat of association with lunatics. I think that the official story of what happened on September 11, 2001, is thin. It's not a big issue in my life, but at the same time, I, I just won't be bullied into not talking about it. Um, as far as I understand it, three steel-frame skyscrapers in the history of steel-framed skyscrapers have collapsed due to fire. And all three of them happened on September eleventh, two 2001. That just seems unlikely to me. And the explanations that have been offered for how this came about, I find unconvincing. But again, at the same time, it's not it's not an issue that draws me in. So I don't have any um, any pet theories, and I certainly don't have a lot of names and facts and uh, the details of other people's pet theories committed to memory to offer you know, as an alternate
2: narrative.
1: Mm. I certainly don't know the history of steel skyscrapers, but I certainly know the history of construction in Malaysia, or at least have had ebbs and flows. And there, there's the example that's regularly portrayed is Genting Highlands, which was an apartment skyscraper that collapsed in Malaysia. I think the narrative associated with steel structures is relatively weak for people that have a background in engineering. And I think the, the thing that interests me with regards to the 9-11 truthers is that they are in large part... I mean, I, I have my own distinct views with regards to September 11th. I put them very briefly and succinctly on YouTube one time. And I've never uh, received such vitriol from people who would claim to be um, you know, wanting, to, uh, wanting to promote some degree of discourse. I The thing that I find fascinating is that they are such a, a radicalised and, as to paraphrase what you've said, a, a lunatic body, that um, any kind of rational discourse associated with it is very difficult in this framing. It almost seems to me, uh, and here I'm, I'm speaking very outside the realms of stuff that I've talked on in the past, that this is a group which is, in fact, heavily organised in order to make the whole association with 9-11 being something more than it was portrayed as being completely lunatic. I'm very interested in uh, JFK as well in a similar light in terms of the way that what the public was given was clearly not the whole story, but what came out afterwards was, as as occurred with 9-11, a variety of just unhinged folk that have clouded the whole circumstance. So I agree with you and I certainly applaud your efforts to um, keep this discussion going. I, I agree with you also that the people that seem to be involved in this as a kind of lifestyle um, are, uh, are uh, genuinely unhinged. I guess my question back to you is that um, clearly the, the story wasn't uh, particularly accurate. The thing that interests me is funding. The thing that interests me is the uh, legacy involvement with the Mujahideen and also the continued involvement of Pakistani intelligence in the Taliban. And I think there is a lot of stuff which is now pretty well public knowledge in terms of uh, Senate committees and uh, you know various things that have gone on Capitol Hill, which the American populace don't know about, even though it's part of public records. So there's some kind of surreal disconnect in this country between actually making the information public and um, getting the public to understand it in some light. What I haven't heard any of your podcast discussions associated with WikiLeaks. What are your thoughts with regards to WikiLeaks?
0: Well, I haven't done any podcast discussions specifically on WikiLeaks, um, and I can't say that I, I know a whole lot about the subject. I, I do know that it is... Uh, a source of information from within the military that official military channels wouldn't necessarily want to release to the public. Mm. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think to the degree that the uh, the information that you know is derived via WikiLeaks can be authenticated and verified, that it's it's a great source. I don't think many people are listening. You know, I think I agree. most people who know about WikiLeaks are the sorts of people who would listen to Democracy Now!, yes. but that's a tiny, <laughs> tiny subset of the population.
1: Testified, yes. Uh, m- the thing that interests me about WikiLeaks, and I listen to Democracy Now!, is that, um, is that WikiLeaks, all the information that WikiLeaks released, or pretty well all, aside from maybe exact pinpoint locations, uh, and exact pinpoint dates was already a matter for public record. It was already disclosed uh, in congressional subcommittees and, and made public. The thing that's fascinating about WikiLeaks is that the information was also screened by uh, the Department of Defence and all the information that was released, I think actually, and you've touched on this, it is actually part of a blunting of the public, an explicit blunting of the public, which is very well organised to make the public just relatively jaded with regards to these ongoing, never-ending conflicts. But the thing that interests me with regards to September 11th, and particularly the truth of movement, is I see it as a continuum, of which September 11th is just a bump that was then used to justify further stuff, but predates September 11th. And I don't see any... I mean, I've watched watched two versions of the uh, film that talks about, you know, the towers crumbling... What's the spare change? Is that Loose Change? Is that the film?
0: That's one film. I don't know that I've actually seen Loose Change.
1: Yeah. But yeah, that's
0: one that uh, I believe Alex Jones has sort of taken on board and, and marketed that he didn't actually create it.
1: Yeah, I think the interesting thing with Loose Change is how much the production values have increased each new version that they've released, and also that the stuff that they've cut. I also think the obsession with regards to amateur engineering is really flawed because basically i i don't know your um background but i have a physics degree and i've done quite a bit of engineering and basically all the engineering stuff associated with september 11th in terms of high thermal uh high octane fuels these kind of things are all perfectly feasible um it just people just don't seem to understand that in terms of engineering but The thing that strikes me is really the background, the legacy, and also how it's been used into the future. And I don't see... I see the truther movement kind of paying lip service to that in terms of saying it's all been, you know, from the get-go to the end, a great big conspiracy. But there's no kind of deconstruction of where we go from here if, you know, they started lying to us around September 11th. Do you see any... In your assessment of these movements, do you see any movement that is actually providing like a kind of continuum historical analysis with a with an adequate narrative which puts it all in perspective or do you just see like blips like nine eleven truthers and uh you know maybe other blips along the radar or do you see that there are actual coherent narrators that are worth following
0: that's uh sort of a collection of, of interesting questions. Let me start off by saying that I know there are people who will listen to this who will think that I am a, uh, a shill for the mainstream narrative if I fail to mention the group. Uh, I think it's Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Apparently there are a number of trained architects and engineers who are unconvinced by the, the mainstream narrative of what happened mm-hmm. in those buildings. I certainly don't claim to know enough about the topic to uh, say whether I agree with them or disagree. In terms of ongoing narratives, that's a real tough one because there are people, I think, who take a, a very long-term historical view and um, they can get caught up in conspiracy narratives, but they also offer some very uh, very sharp systemic critique of you know, how it is we've come to a situation where we have such powerful bodies who are unaccountable, um, to the people who fund them. But at the same time, those narratives almost always get polluted with something really unpalatable. Mm. So I mentioned Alex Jones before, and I think Alex Jones is really brilliant at articulating this sort of um, warfare, the economic warfare that goes on between the first world and the third world. You know, using the IMF and the World Bank to go in and get an economy all loaned up and then, you know, it's the knowledge, the full knowledge in advance, that the money will be embezzled, stolen, squandered, and that this country will be left with huge debts and that they will then be pressured into all these austerity measures and their public works will be privatized and made into a sort of toll booth economy.
1: Mm. But isn't that also isn't that also um, Noel Chomsky, and um, my mind's gone blank, the woman, the no-logo woman as well, Naomi Klein? I mean, that's yeah, both yeah, their narratives too.
0: That's, that's what I think... Alex Jones is doing a rather good job, but then he mixes in, you know, he has to fill all of this airspace. He he does a show, I think, six days a week, maybe seven days a week, multiple hours every day.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that narrative just doesn't fill that much space. And so he's got to bring in all of these other things. And years ago, I don't know if you're familiar with this um, this British conspiracy theorist, His name is David Icke.
1: Of course, yeah, the scaly, and the... the, the um the reptilian overlords, is that the... Right,
0: right. And David Icke has some, some very uh, lucid criticisms of our system of, of governance. And then, you know, you get to the end of his message and uh, Prince Charles and Ronald Reagan are shapeshifting aliens.
2: Mm.
0: And years ago, Alex Jones described um, David Icke as the turd in the punch bowl. You know, he takes all of these... Fairly respectable material, and then poisons it with this one absurd assertion. And now David Icke is a regular guest on Alex Jones's program. Mm. So Alex has is, is gone the same route. He's taken all of the things that are valid criticisms and valid concerns, and wrapped them up with things that are absurd. Mm. And it it almost seems. I mean, if I were conspiratorially minded, that he is uh, an intentional agent for poisoning these. You know, these otherwise viable narratives.
1: I would agree with that. I would agree with that wholeheartedly, and I'm glad you said that. I guess my question is where are the independent thinkers that aren't talking about reptilian overlords but are still. I mean, with regards to uh, Naomi Klein and, and Noam Chomsky in particular, I think they're both very weak on a number of issues which the, their opponents regularly uh, dwell on, although they're not talking about reptilian overlords. Um, <laughs> but I think the. The concern that I find and certainly one of the reasons that I set up this podcast was actually trying to track down people such as yourself who are actually making inquiries and trying to find the next generation of thinkers and doers that will actually be able to answer these things coherently. So I think rather than dwelling on the likes of Alex Jones, as you, the, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is your uh, couch surfing tour. Because this is something certainly Heron, my, my other occasional co-host, is very interested in. This idea of actually translating what we do through podcasts into something that's very physical. Um, he is a, very much a child of McKenna in terms of seeing a couple of McKenna's talks and uh, resonating with him. So he understands the power of kind of narrative on location, even though he, he displays that with regards to what we do in podcasts too. But can we talk a little bit about the couch surfing tour? I'd to. Something that I found fascinating through that was you actually found people who could really be the next generation of thinkers in this discussion. Can you talk a little bit about the background of the Couchsurfing Tour, the successes and I guess some of the failures that you may have seen through it, and whether you think you'll be doing this again in the near future?
2: Well,
0: let me answer the last question first. I am definitely doing it again in the month of November. Uh, I have a book out now. It's called Conversations on Collapse, and it is transcripts of early Sea Realm podcasts that uh, changed the direction of the podcast. And I'm going to be I'm in Tennessee right now, and I will be heading east on that tour. So I'll be doing stops in North Carolina and uh, Connecticut, possibly Maryland and Vermont. And, uh, and it's going to be on the Couchsurfing model, which is... I just put out the call via the podcast and via Facebook and whatnot saying... I would like to come and give a talk. Who would like to organize it? And somebody steps up and they say, well, you know, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm associated with this group, and I'm sure I could get this many people, and I'll be happy to put you up, and I think we could probably secure this venue. And, it, you know, it works out with varying degrees of success. Mm -hmm. I've discovered that it is much easier to secure a venue than it is to fill the venue. Mm -hmm. So what's really... um, key is somebody who has an existing social network that they can tap in order to get people into the room to listen. But when I did the first couch surfing tour, it was with Neil Kramer, who's been a regular guest on my program. And we had small audiences and we had large audiences. <laughs> Sometimes our, our largest, largest audiences were in the smallest spaces, so it was very cramped. But um, every, every gathering was satisfying. Every gathering brought together people who have a lot in common and a lot to say to one another who probably would not have met otherwise. And that I think is the main value of these events for the people who attend them. You know, obviously the value of the event is different for me, but since I'm just one person and there'll be hundreds of people attending, uh, you know, I'd rather describe it in terms of the benefits to the audience. And I think that main audience benefit is taking a collection of ideas that bring together an online community and i put community in quotes there and translate that into an actual community of people that you can meet with face to face and coordinate with and socialize with and just really you know have some fellowship
1: with reflecting on the couch the first couch surfing tour that you did In terms of, I I think that what's interesting with regards to this podcasting phenomena, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in in kind of greater granularity um, a bit further on, but the idea of the phenomena is that what we are doing is creating virtual communities. And I think the phenomena, particularly in this country, is that there aren't existing social, physical communities, particularly as the population or the skilled population, the population that would be listening to podcasts, are functionally economic nomads in terms of having to move from location to location. The ability for these groups to actually have a community, a physical community, is oftentimes now removed, and I think that might be some of the phenomena that you saw as as you were travelling. In terms of the folks that you met, did you get a sense that most of them were there to listen, or did you get a sense that there was a portion that were there to contribute as well?
0: You know, the question-and-answer portions of the events were always the most interesting and while people some people came to be entertained some people came to be uh... inspired or to have their um, you know their own narratives validated a lot of people came to share and i'm sure you've been in situations where somebody is sharing too much and uh... people took the opportunity to ask a question or make a, a brief point and you know, held the floor for way too long but um, in general, it was a mix. I think people were there to be inspired, to be validated, to meet the other people around them. Some people, and this <laughs> was mostly true in Hollywood, were there to meet celebrities. You know, they hear the voice of KMO through the same uh, earbuds that they hear the voice of Amy Goodman or, you know, maybe even Bill Maher or John Stewart. And, you know, to them, ooh, here's the chance to meet a celebrity. I found that a little off putting and certainly it made me uncomfortable. There were other venues where there was none of that going on and that was, those were the evenings that were uh, more gratifying to me, just to be able to communicate with people who resonated with the ideas that I'm sharing via the Sea Realm podcast and just really wanted to come out and make an actual physical face to face handshake sort of connection with that community. You know, and and I still, when we're talking about virtual communities or online communities, I just have to put up the air quotes because it it seems like um, a simulated community or an approximation of a community or some some aspect of a community, but not a full-fledged community.
1: That's a very interesting analysis, and certainly, um, yeah, Heron has exactly the opposite view, and I'm somewhere in between both of you. Uh, because I certainly do agree that there is a need for a, a physical community as well, and I think it can be very nurturing in almost all circumstances. The difficulty is really just creating it. Returning to this idea, though, um, in terms of the folks that you met in the couch surfing tour, have any of the people that you met through that experience then gone on to appear on the C-Roll? I don't think so. I recall you, soon after completing the tour, actually published some audio of people that you had met early on. Uh, I think maybe just north of the Bay Area, you you met a father and son who both, maybe it was a live recording, actually, of the of the event, specifically the question and answer session, or I think maybe you met with them the day after the event. I, guess- I
0: stand corrected, yes. Gordon Wardlaw hosted the Mendocino event, and I had not met him prior to entering his home, and he did appear on the podcast
1: i guess my sense i mean i'm i'm very much in the belief that find the others is the seed of mckenna that re- is really probably very important for people <laughs> such as yourself and myself because i think as the, the notion, 2000
0: meme uh, becomes less and less relevant or the 2012 meme
1: well i don't know i, I think the, the idea of novelty which is what drove that i think still has a lot of merit i think the um the eschaton uh yeah anyway you you know my views with regards to that we've yeah talked about today. <laughs> so uh, moving from the eschaton to the idea of finding the others um i think what what interests me with regards to people such as yourself is the ability certainly early on in the first um I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 series of, of your podcast, the the people that you kind of got introduced to really through the podcasting format and then moved into into being regular guests on, on the podcast. Are the folks that you've uh, had on initially who have become regular guests which have taken maybe two or three uh, introductions before you've warmed to them, or do you find the whole podcasting format is really just a way of, of finding kindred spirits fundamentally?
0: Well... I certainly agree that it is a way of finding kindred spirits. I would remove the word just. It's many things. Um, Typically, if I don't gel with somebody on the initial interview, I don't invite them back simply because, you know, I'm not paid a whole lot of money to do the Sea Realm podcast, so it needs to be uh, reinforcing for me in other ways. And so, you know, if there's friction between me and a, a guest, then I generally don't want to talk to them again. I would rather get somebody back on the program that I know, you know will give me, uh, will entertain me and keep me happy as well as provide entertaining material for the audience. So, for example, I think James Howard Kunstler has been on the podcast more than anybody else. And that's because, you know, one, I can call him up on short notice and say, hey, Jim, I don't have anything for this week. Can you help me out? And two... All I really have to do is say, okay, we're recording, go. And he will talk for as long as I give him the opportunity to talk. And, you know, it's all material that is relevant to the ongoing Sea Realm project. So, you know, you can count on hearing him many more times in the future. Hmm. I, uh, I had a guest on, I think it was last summer, whose name is Frank Rotering. And he has some ideas about economics that I'm interested in. And I would be interested in reading more of what he has to say. And he's actually recently appeared twice on the Diet Soap podcast since he was on my podcast. And I've enjoyed both of those appearances. But, you know, we didn't gel so well on the phone, he and I. And I'm not in any hurry to have him back on the podcast, although he's he's certainly welcome back. It's just, you know, when I'm casting around for the next guest, I'm more likely to call somebody, either somebody I haven't spoken to before, or somebody that I had a really good time with the last time I did speak to them. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: So, uh, returning to this idea of of your podcast specifically and the idea of the Sea Realm project, can you talk a little bit more about what you see the Sea Realm project as being?
0: Well, it is evolving. Uh, Initially, the Sea Realm, uh, when I was a graduate student, And I was teaching undergraduates. I was also the author of a comic strip in the university newspaper. And that comic strip was fairly risque, featured some some nudity and some, um, you know, some sexual material. And so that's when I started using the KMO moniker to keep Kevin O'Connor, the you know, philosophy department uh, graduate instructor separate from KMO, the author of this sort of outrageous comic strip.
1: Can I just stop you there for a second? Sure. The idea that um, it's something that's very interesting about this country, and certainly as I, I move from place to place, it's something that I return to because I find it kind of um, sublimating my own thinking as well. The notion that nudity and sexuality are risque topics is something which I think is is kind of quintessentially um, American and certainly when people say risque in this country and continue by saying you know sexuality and nudity I think the kind of the other stuff that you talk about in the C realm I think is slightly more risque um, perhaps for I I don't know maybe a more international audience so it's interesting that you point out aside from the nudity and other things was there a a chart political message was there a kind of anti-establishment message or these kind of things that also existed in the comic aside from nudity and what have you
0: the comic was mostly self-referential and self-deconstructing and just played self-referential games with itself. Okay. It didn't have a lot to say in terms of social commentary. But on an American university campus, um, the the lines of political correctness are quite clear, and you cross them at your peril. So it, it was certainly within my interest, in, because, you know, as a... A graduate student who had a tuition waiver because I was teaching undergraduates, there was a lot of money on the line. Mm. You know, if I were to run afoul of somebody who insisted that I be fired, then, you know, my postgraduate education is over because mm. I couldn't afford to
1: pay the tuition. Certainly. It's an interesting It's an interesting thing because, I mean, my, my father's second wife was a student, a graduate student at Berkeley through the riots in the late 60s. And the fact that then I have a, a friend who uh, went to Kent State and the fact that people have actually been killed on university campuses here by the military and also these long-standing early, you know, well, nineteen late 1960s riot uh, phenomena that occurred in this country with regards to freedom of speech issues on university campuses. The conservatization of American university campuses is something that, uh, you know, has to be thought of particularly when you start talking about the kind of movements that interest you as something that needs to be deconstructed almost as a, a thing of primacy really you, would you consider that as well or do you you 've you 've mentioned the financial part of this too, which I find fascinating because that 's obviously the you know the great the great knife behind you in these kind of circumstances if you had been financially independent, do you think you would have been more um, well, I don't want to use the word risque, now you've, now you've defined that in a particular context, but do you think you would have been more outspoken uh, if there wasn't a, a financial constraint on you? Would you have actually published under your own name, for example?
0: I don't know. Um, had I been financially independent, I probably wouldn't have been in grad school. Um, but in terms of publishing under the pseudonym, it it was always a very comfortable thing. Um, the KMO moniker, I mean, that's when I first published under it, but when I was in the very early days of the the Internet, not the early days of the Internet, but just prior to the, uh, the birth of the Web, when I was involved in a lot of discussions on Usenet news groups, um, I was KMO there, and I wasn't really looking to uh, conceal my identity, because I wasn't talking about anything particularly dangerous. I was talking about things that were obscure and esoteric, but nothing that really offended anybody. And, uh, I don't know, camo was just a, a handy sort of nom de net. It was a very comfortable identity to assume, you know, when I was on the Internet.
1: In terms of your current life, I associate... Um, we. Heron and I have talked in the past with regards to uh, Douglas Rushkoff's most recent book and kind of deconstruction of capitalism, and I think you're probably the only person that I know of that is actually really following Rushkoff's line very heavily in terms of uh, removing yourself from from the the kind of capitalistic system in a very fundamental sense. can you give some description I mean do you think of do you think of your current life as embodying what rushkoff describes in his book uh, or I mean do, do you just see that you've you've come to this point and it's purely circumstance that basically makes you appear perhaps to people such as myself as a poster child, for what Rushkoff is talking about.
0: Well, um, just to add a little detail to your question, I mean, Douglas Rushkoff's book, the one you're talking about, is called Life, Inc., How the World Became a Corporation and How to Take It Back. And when I spoke to him about it, uh, he was clear that you know he was not looking to abolish corporations, he was not looking to frame this as a war between humans and human communities and corporations, that... We could make some slight adjustments in the way we do business that would put corporations into the proper context and that they would actually serve a useful function there. Uh, I think I take a stronger line. I think that corporations are artificial life forms that uh, do not share a human agenda at all, that are completely, I don't want to say antithetical, but completely indifferent. To human concerns and human well-being. They have their own agendas and they have their own imperatives that they must follow and that they must maximize. And um, I think they're they're rather dangerous things. My own situation is not one that I intentionally created because of uh, some philosophical commitment, though. I was a cubicle worker, and just the conditions of my work were so so unpleasant that I simply could not continue. And I didn't decide that, you know, quitting that job was the right thing to do. I didn't decide that it was uh, the thing that was most in line with my principles. It's just I couldn't stand it anymore. And once I quit, then the opportunity to come here to the Ecovillage Training Center arose. So uh, there's, there's sort of a life lesson that I would associate with that that is not relevant to your question. So I'll sort of back away from that potential segue and just ask you to... Um, to reframe the question in terms of, you know, what your interests were when you first posed it.
1: Okay. So I think I agree with you in large part that, and I, you know, I've known Douglas Rushkoff as long as you have. And in fact, my whole, way of connecting myself to Douglas Rushkoff was with, through a Syrian critique of Siberia, uh, where I got a very polite response saying that he basically agreed with my critique. So Douglas and I have diverged with regards to our particular uh, philosophies in both the, the public and the private sphere um, since we've known each other. So that aside, my view is that uh, Douglas is incoherent uh, in his analysis, not just from what you've described, but the only solution that he gives uh, involves uh, d- basically doing damage to yourself to the point where you are meaningless to the uh, increasing uh, corporate empire. And I think what interests me when he when he had his radio show last year, for example, was that the only offering he could give of something that closely approximated what he was describing was paying, I think, 50, maybe even 100, maybe it was 60. It was somewhere in the high tens of thousands of dollars to an organised commune so they could build sewerage systems to accommodate you, so you could then move on to the the commune environment. And certainly um, in your general description, I don't think you had to pay uh, money to be where where you are currently, or certainly not, in the grounds that uh, Douglas uh, described. And I thought there was something surreal about... Douglas's description, I think there needs to be a, a more radical uh, deconstruction, as, as you've agreed with, uh, but also that the notion that the damage that needs to be inflicted is not with regards to humans intentionally in order to try and deconstruct the system. The damage that needs to be inflicted is at the system itself. The way in which that is done is not described by Douglas because he doesn't go down that route um, in description. But certainly what I'd like to see is people who are considerably more mindful. And my concern with uh, uh, Life, Inc. is the analysis is only partial and it's very much incomplete uh, in that regard. I mean, what, what I implore you for is, um, irrespective of the, the, what you describe as not necessarily life choices, the, I mean, certainly I've been at points in my life where these things have come up as well. And I've not made the choices to do the things that you have done. I've basically fought and re-fought and re-fought and re-fought to my own, you know, physical peril uh, in order to um, kind of reintegrate and mysteriously return to um, cubicle working obscurity. Um, So I think I, I don't know the details associated with your decisions or the circumstances that you've been in. But certainly as I hear your um, your uh, circumstances progressively, I think you've certainly embraced the other side um, in terms of, uh, you know, doing what you're doing currently. And certainly, I mean, hats off to you um, because I think it's a very uh, courageous decision and it, from my own perspective, actually probably the right decision. Um, and certainly... Does that frame the question a little bit better?
0: <laughs> well, I'm afraid you've distracted me with compliments, but uh, thank you, thank you for saying that. Um, I think I, I loved Douglas Rushkoff's book, and you know, I, I can certainly see that uh, his his criticism of of corporations, particularly in their their contemporary context, might be incomplete or inadequate but I think he's done such an excellent job with the history, and he's, he's put together something that most people are not familiar with and that they would benefit from. So have I, you
1: read Siberia?
0: I have not. You know, the first book I read by him was um, Media Virus.
1: Okay. If you read Siberia, you will see a similar account, as he gives in Life think, to his cor- What? You'll get a similar account of his corporate account in Life, with regards to technology. And the thing that strikes me about Siberia, aside from the fact that he spells Steve Jobs' name incorrect throughout the book, <laughs> is that um, it is a similar... And You know, I'm, I'm very fond of Douglas. He's a good friend of mine. I don't want to be overly critical to him as a person because I see him very distinct as a person to his work. But I think... I've always been critical of his work. I like coercion because he actually apologises for some of his work in coercion, but I've always been critical of his work because I think th- there is a thin line between just enough PAP to be popularist and just enough PAP to can- convey an understanding. And my, m- you know, my own work has always been more with regards to the understanding of the populousness But I think um, with life in Douglas um, hits a few softballs. I think his history is inadequate. Um, it's, he likes casting, you know, back to uh, back to kind of prehistory um, sways, and he does that with Siberia as well. The problem with uh, Siberia in particular is that he summarises and focuses on particular areas, the, the Bay Area of San Francisco primarily, and fails to see that even the characters that he portrays in Siberia have considerably more grit. I would recommend people read well to a lesser extent Fire in the Valley because I think that's an earlier book but with considerably more grit and they spell Steve Jobs' name correctly um, but my concern with regards to Douglas's writing is that if it if it gets people thinking gets people reading more gets people really interested and gets people passionate to actually discover more of the, the background so much the better I'm concerned that it is in fact more a book where people read it and then think now I'm done You know, I've invested my intellectual capacity in this thing. I have a better understanding. I'll just go to the next, next New York Times bestseller or what have you. And I think that was my concern with regards to... Well, Douglas's approach really dating back to Siberia. I think there needs to be a really critical understanding of the state corporate context and, interestingly, also the historical context of other... Uh, nation-states that have been intertwined with corporations. There are a number of clichés that I will mention here, but I think there's a fascinating history associated with that, and I'm looking for people that are taking an adequate deconstruction of this. I guess the comment with regards to the engineers, the, the 9-11 engineers, they tend to be um, mineral scientists and things that aren't actually connected with, um, you know, building materials fundamentally, although there, there are sways and ebbs and what have you. I guess my interest with regards to Douglas's account is that we need to be finding new intellectuals and new thinkers that are actually taking a greater degree of depth. Um, And I think maybe you might actually fit into that in some regard. I mean, certainly what you've said, um, both in our private conversations, our recorded conversations, and here now, has been very positive in that light in terms of your analysis. I think what interests me with regards to your current approach is that you're super-skilling yourself in things which I don't necessarily believe hold the solutions, but I think at least construct some of the narrative. Can you talk a little bit about your your current life, what you're learning currently, and how it's it's perhaps a contrast to being a cubicle worker?
0: Well, there's a bit of irony in it because um, I live at the Ecovillage Training Center, which is a portion of an intentional community called The Farm in Summertown, Tennessee. The farm used to be a, a hippie commune organized around the charismatic leadership of uh, a prophet figure, and after about 10 years, the, uh, the leaders of the community below the charismatic leader sort of staged a revolution, and they decollectivized, they dethroned the charismatic leader, they instituted some, uh, some financial discipline, and they went from having a community of about 1,400 people to having a community of fewer than 200 because basically anybody who couldn't pay their way had to leave. And um, so that's the place where I live. I'm not a member of this community. I have no standing here on the farm. I'm an employee of the EcoVillage Training Center. The EcoVillage Training Center teaches people very practical skills like uh, alternate building, you know, construction skills, uh, cobs, straw bale, that sort of thing. They teach uh, permaculture and organic gardening and just a whole host of very practical skills, like, you know, how to run a chainsaw. Um, Things that people will need to know when they're living a life that is not so specialized as the corporate, corporate cubicle lifestyle. But my role here mainly involves me standing in front of my computer, typing emails and recording conversations and doing audio editing, and basically doing all the things that I could do from anywhere, you know, and... Completely online um, mental work <laughs> so and, and it's doubly ironic because we have such limited internet connectivity here, and yet most of what i 'm doing is internet based so while there are permaculture apprentices here who are you know stomping their feet in clay to uh, to make cob to make buildings and who are cutting down trees and using them to fashion uh, post and beam construction projects, I'm at my computer most of the time or I'm reading books or I'm talking to people on the phone. So it's it's kind of fun, kind of silly that here I am. Um, but it's also good because I'm sitting on the roof of the EcoVillage Training Center and I'm sitting next to a, uh, a bank of solar panels. I'm sitting next to two uh, satellite antennas or dishes, one for Dish Network and the other for HughesNet, which provides our Internet. And it is a little snapshot of what life might be like in an environment where we don't have the resources to be as profligate and consumer-oriented and hyper-specialized as we are now, but in which we still have the comforts and the advantages of information technology and uh, heating and cooling and
1: running water and that sort of thing. So in terms of felines, because we both have surrounded ourselves, or at least maybe in the past, surrounded ourselves with cats. Do you have any cats?
0: There was a cat who was the official ETC cat when I arrived here, but she was quite old and she died soon after I arrived. Uh, I have two cats, but Albert Bates, who founded the Villa Training Center, uh, does not want to have pets on the premises. The, uh, the innkeeper here adopted a kitten while she was here, and an exception has been made for her. She's allowed to keep the kitten, provided that it goes when she goes. So um, I don't have cats as close to me as I would like.
1: Well, yes, as someone who is surrounded by them currently and has gone through periods where I haven't been allowed to have cats, um, yeah, I think it's interesting, actually. What, what you're describing, when I... I mean, I, I too, I don't have a book out currently, but I too have a book that I'm about to get out, uh, and it was written, I wrote it when I was 17 and a large portion of it was written about my experiences in a cyber hippie commune in, in Northern New South Wales, uh, very much deconstructing some of the stuff that you're talking about. I guess the, and this isn't universal to all Australians, but certainly my experiences in Australia, uh, taught me a great degree about survival, um, particularly skills, Uh, associated with building, uh, creating dry shelters, finding food, uh, gathering firewood, um, things, gardening, you know, a wide variety of things that you're describing. When I came to this country, I was maybe maybe horrified is even the right term by the um, Martha Stewart phenomena, the notion that people will pay money, lots of money, ridiculous sums of money, to learn skills which previously had been passed on from generation to generation. And that actually, there is something that has—I don't—I think there is a fear associated with the outside world and the unknown, and the notion of competency, which has gone on in some way in this country, which I don't think is necessarily unique to the U.S., but certainly permeates the U.S. With people who have the physical skills. I mean, for example, my uncle uh, built his own house in Australia. Uh, my other uncle basically has maintained a victorian house with a wide variety of construction techniques uh and the kind of general level of survival that is i guess expected uh in australia is somewhat higher than here can you i mean as you see people come in i understand that you're not actually part of the teaching but can you talk a little bit about deconstructing this idea of survival and if people are listening in that may feel Uh, inadequate with regards to planting vegetables and uh, building uh, structures that they can survive under. There are really basic fundamentals associated with fear that need to be removed relatively early on. Can you describe your own kind of deconstruction associated with that?
0: Well, um, I think we tend to think in images and we tend to think in polar opposites. So if people hear that this system by which, you know, you don't even need to know who your neighbors are, and you certainly don't need to know how to grow food, because everything has been uh, allocated out to people who are very, very specialized. So you've got somebody who drives a tractor in Iowa, but doesn't really know anything about growing vegetables, because he doesn't grow vegetables. He drives the tractor, you know, on this course that is plotted by satellites uh, to spray pesticides on his GMO crops, and that's how we feed people people think that if that system isn't viable for the long term, then suddenly everybody has to be uh, you know, an army of one in terms of creating their own shelter and food and whatnot. And that's it's just not the case. Uh, I think that if the current system breaks down, it might break down catastrophically, but at worst, we will be reduced to... Uh, a level of, not subsistence, but a a style of living that two-thirds of the world's population are already living. And it's not the preferred mode. They would like to live like us, but they do live. And not everybody living in Peru or not everybody living in Ecuador or Afghanistan uh, does everything for themselves. There is still some specialization, but they do have some skills that most of us here in the industrialized first world don't have, but I don't think there's much reason to be fearful of you know, having to be a bit more self-reliant. There's not going to be, as far as I can see, a switch that is flipped, and one day everybody who is making their living by collecting debt over the telephone suddenly has to go out with a spear or a bow and catch their dinner and uh, you know, gut a deer and skin it and preserve the meat. It's not going to happen that way. And something that Dmitry Orlov said to me in my very first conversation with him is that really the best things we can do in preparation for our hard times are to acquire skills that will be, that will enrich our lives even if things continue to go well in terms of our very complex petroleum-fueled technological civilization. So learning to play an instrument. You know, in an environment when there's no electricity, if you can play a guitar People will appreciate your ability to play a guitar, and it will be a very useful skill to have. But even if things go fine, and technology continues to make our lives easier and more comfortable, and all of these systems, which I think are uh, unsustainable, turn out to be completely sustainable, it will still improve your life to know how to play the guitar. And the same is true of gardening. You know, don't go out into the garden with a, a fear mindset, thinking, oh my gosh, I have to figure out how to feed myself out of this little plot of land. Just go out and tinker with it and play around and, you know, plant some different things and read some things and, and see what works for you and what you find easy, you know. I have never been able, been able to grow eggplants. They no matter where I try, flea beetles eat them. But I've found that it's really ridiculously easy to grow spaghetti squash. And I wouldn't have found that out if I hadn't gone out and started a garden. I've never had a garden that produced enough food to really even pay for itself, you know, if you were to count the value of uh, my time, my gardening has always been a money-losing proposition, but at the same time, I have have interacted with the local biota in a way that I wouldn't have if I'd spent all of my time inside on the computer, even if the, the activity that I was doing on the computer made me more money or, you know, ultimately proved to be more productive in my time spent out in the garden with dirt and seeds and bits of fencing and railroad ties and all the things that I use in gardening.
1: And also food is dramatically subsidised. I mean, the way in which the cost of things are is, is altered means that whilst you may believe that you could never do it in an economic fashion, it's in fact what is constructed in the food economy to make food... Ridiculously cheap, although you do pay through other ways, um, that you know makes makes those kind of things quite uh, quite interesting claims. I mean it's not that we're dealing with a zero sum situation currently where when you're provided with food uh, in the cost of it you are actually getting the true cost of it. So what you describe with regards to gardening and the notion that it costs more to actually produce food probably gives a clearer indication that food actually costs more than we pay for it uh, at least in the in the checkout line.
0: Yes, it, well, it certainly does. I mean, that largely takes us back to the whole question of uh, the society organized around the benefit of corporations. You know, corporations, they have to externalize costs, and the corporations that provide food have externalized the cost of providing food such that the, they can sell it for a very attractive price and make a lot of money. But, yeah, that, it's costing us a lot more than we see on the cash register at the grocery store.
1: I wanted to talk a little bit about the book that you have out currently, but the thing that interests me, particularly working on a book of my own currently, is the whole background to why one actually would put a book out at any given time, particularly the whole notion of kind of paper and text and the kind of almost antiquated notion of what books are in, in modern thinking. Um, would you like to give some kind of background discussion to the motivation of your thinking in putting a book out at this time?
0: Well, I can... It goes back to a specific conversation that I had with Frank Aragona. He's the host of the Agro Innovations podcast, and I was a guest on his show, and he asked me what my plans are or what I wanted to do, and I said basically I wanted to uh, to give public talks and do all the things that one would do on a book tour, but I don't really feel motivated to write a book. And he mm-hmm. just told me, well, you probably just need to write a book. And I saw the logic in that, so... Now that there is a book, the book really is a prop to justify a book tour.
1: So let's return... I mean, certainly the the Biota podcast I do is quoted in uh, academic texts occasionally. And the thing that strikes me from that, and lots of people have come to me, it's now, I think, gotten to the point where it would be too overwhelming to translate all of it into a text form, although I'm still sympathetic to the idea of picking... Maybe, although my favourite ten and another person's favourite ten uh, biotas would probably be completely different. The central topic is peak oil, basically, in the conversations.
0: Well, it's collapse, and a lot of the people who are talking about potential failure modes for industrial civilization trace it back to our dependence on petroleum. But these guests that I'm talking to, they come at it from a variety of angles. So I should have the the list of of interviewees memorized by now, but I don't, so let me flip to the table of contents. This book collects interviews with Dmitry Orlov, Albert K. Bates, Thomas Homer Dixon, Sharon Astick, Albert Bartlett, Cornelia Butler-Flora, Bill McKibben, James Howard Kunstler, Colin Tudge, and Joe Bajan and then there is a final chapter that will be removed because that person does not want to be included in the book, so I will not mention his name.
1: Okay. The thing that interests me about peak oil and this notion of it being the root cause of collapse is that, I in just a priori, I would think, and this is probably my own particular persuasion, but the economic system is um, more primary than the the means that people put in their vehicles and in order to transport goods. And uh, it seems interesting that peak oil is thought of in terms. I mean, I I'm sympathetic to peak oil, but when I appeared on your on your podcast, I think you asked me a kind of leading peak oil question, and my response to that was, and this is probably why I'm not in the book, was I thought that probably there would be a wide variety of mechanisms that we used prior to uh, peak oil, which would be considerably more nasty to individual humans, which you kind of already see in things like food riots and um, probably stuff that would come after peak oil as well. And peak oil, in my own thinking, certainly is an optional extra, uh, but I see that there are many other points of fragility that could cause collapse. In your own thinking, do you think peak oil is central, or was it just the fact that you've been able to collect together so many people that can talk on peak oil specifically in the C-Rail?
0: Well, um, you've got a few questions gathered together there, so... Uh, I'll see if I can get them all. First, I, I agree with you. I think that in terms of a sudden breakdown, uh, particularly in the near future, the financial system is much a much bigger liability for us than our dependence on petroleum. Um, there are, at this point, 226 episodes of the CROM podcast in this book, represents material from 12 of them so uh, the fact that our conversation is not in it is certainly you know, not anything against the I'm conversation teasing. that you and I'm I
1: have. although you haven't invited me back on so people can rewind and find out why but anyway, continue <laughs> What was the, the remaining portion of your question? I guess, I guess what interests me about PCOil is that it, it, it is an option from, from my perspective it's an optional part of a continuum and the thing that concerns me about people that focus on PCOIL coil. Although I mean, I as a a complete aside, I find it surreal that U.S. industry has been so unable, even in the waves of kind of forced government funding and tax breaks and things like that, to actually construct an efficient car or an electronic uh, car that can run on electricity. I mean, I just find it completely surreal that this is impossible. But that's an aside. The notion I think of peak oil is part of a far greater continuum of which peak oil is optional i think as i I've said what interests me with regards to people that talk about peak oil is again it is there a very i mean not similar but analogous to what we were discussing with nine eleven truthers that it is in fact a, a focus on a particular section of a far greater continuum in when you were thinking this is a question that I had for heron as well. Um, with regards to his own writing. But when you were thinking of assembling a book, what jumped out to you in terms of P-Coil versus some of the other conversations that are reoccurring themes in the Sea Realm?
0: When I started the Sea Realm podcast, I was very enthusiastic about evolving technology, about information technology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology. I counted myself as a singularitarian. Um, and the conversations that started to lead me away from that enthusiasm were the ones about peak oil. Also, peak oil is, you know, it's a pretty fully formed narrative already. There are websites devoted to it. There are discussion groups devoted to it. There are books about it. So it's, granted, there is an enormous continuum of things that are very relevant to potential breakdown of industrial civilization and peak oil so, is a small I, part
1: of it. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to stop you at that point, but I would have thought the psychedelic elements of the C realm, the UFO elements of the sea realm, the 2012 elements of the sea realm—they would all, from my perspective at least, fit the same criteria in terms of just the volume of text that was out there. But peak oil, and maybe I'm maybe I'm filling in for you, but peak oil has a slightly well I don't want to say tarnished veneer slightly less tarnished veneer than those topics but I think the the thing that strikes me is is that you, when you said that peak oil was the change in your own thinking in terms of all the things that you saw as as hopeful and I guess my question would be versus say the financial collapse or your own personal experience associated with corporate infrastructure and you know and, and removal from humanity and all these kind of things it, it strikes me as very strong that you found that peak oil was the one topic to is it is it the first topic that that probably is a better question will you do other topics associated with other things that you've talked about in the CROM podcast in, in book form in the future
0: i think so yes the peak oil material all just seems to fit together rather nicely. And selecting the interviews for the book, I didn't agonize over it. It just seemed to take care of itself. My previous experience with corporate culture, you know, when I had started the podcast, I'd really only had one corporate job. I had worked for Amazon.com for two years, and I didn't enjoy it. But at the same time, I made enough money in two years to take the next ten years off and just pursue my interests. And when I started the podcast, I had not re-entered the corporate world, really. I was sort of uh, in orbit around it. I was trying to sell insurance, and so I was contracted with various corporations, but it was in a very sink-or-swim environment. You know, I didn't have a boss. I didn't have anybody who was um, monitoring my keystrokes or, you know, listening in on my phone calls. It was basically, if I could generate business for this corporation, they would pay me for it, and if I didn't, they didn't care. So... You know, the, the later experiences that um, really made me feel sympathy for and solidarity with people who are dependent upon the income that they get from their corporate job, that came later. I was actually caught up in the peak oil narrative before I really started to chafe at the, uh, the life that the corporate cubicle surf leads. And so just, you know, as a quirk of my own biography, that, that could be one reason why I was more interested in in peak oil, because one, it was—I have this tendency to adopt uh, narratives or memeplexes and really embrace them and defend them and get good at articulating them and defending them against criticism, and then turning on them. So I've done that with the techno enthusiasm. I've done that with uh, libertarian politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a uh, dyed-in-the-wool libertarian when I started. Yes, I remember that actually,
1: very, very strikingly uh, because I think your first interview with uh, Lorenzo Haggerty, our, our mutual friend, was very much him in part, kind of sowing a seed of disbelief or at least starting some of that deconstruction. But I could also see it in your own thinking. I find libertarianism, particularly the Right libertarianism that exists in the US very interesting because it's, um, in some regard I share a few of their views, but the whole notion that corporations are the salvation versus the government seems to me to be like a, a very strange and very false dichotomy. And a lot of the bedfellows that come into into play with uh, with American libertarianism. I, I anyway, we're deconstructing my own thinking rather than talking about yours specifically? But I think the thing that strikes me with regards to P. Coyle is, I mean, my own thinking with regards to getting this book out when I was, but I wrote when I was seventeen, is that it's an important narrative which I wrote, I physically wrote, and I've re-edited and, and put back together that I think I certainly don't convey currently. A lot of it actually lends itself to what you're doing currently, and I'll, I'll be sending you a, a copy of it um, probably in a kind of December or January timeframe uh, because I think certainly your your listeners may have some interest um, in this kind of discussion as well. But I guess what you're describing here is really a disenchantment associated with a lot of the... Um, Uh, well, seemingly coherent stories like libertarianism, for example, or uh, the singularity, which are actually based on relatively rocky foundations where you can remove (laughs) components of the foundations. My view is that the whole house shouldn't fall down. You should just basically remove components of the foundations and put your own foundations underneath rather than completely disregarding everything that is part of all these movements. Um, Because I think there is certainly at least a seed of truth in a lot of this stuff. It's just all, all coherent truth. And the thing that strikes me about peak oil in particular is, um, I guess, the ability for people just to focus on it as a thing in and of itself. And also it's something, certainly when I thought about this book I wrote when I was 17, there are a lot of themes in it associated with uh, independence, a lot of themes associated with terrorism, uh, and themes associated with technology and isolation. And I think the thing that strikes me um, about the choice was it wasn't an economic choice. I didn't make the decision to put the book out because I thought it would be a bestseller. I, it was to change a narrative. In terms of your own analysis, do you think that peak Oil is in need of the Realm conversations in a physical form, in a book form? Or is it really more purely just a vehicle for you to uh, continue the couch-surfing tour phenomena?
0: It's both. Uh, there are people who just don't listen to podcasts and will not listen to podcasts. Mm, I agree. But they will read a book. Yeah. And I have... You know, most of the people who have purchased the book are people who are already familiar with the, the personalities in it from the podcast, and I've gotten feedback from people saying, wow, I, I got a lot out of reading this collection of interviews even though I'd already heard the interviews. You know, it, it crystallized a lot of things for me. So I think in addition just to the practical purposes of having a prop for a book tour, there is value in taking something that was originally an audio presentation and putting it on paper, editing it so that it reads properly, and, you know, binding it in a book and having it sitting on the shelf with other books. It, we we access that information differently, and I think we incorporate it into our understanding differently than we do just listening to a conversation. So I think there is value to it. Uh, going back a little bit, it's I'm in a slightly odd position now. Somebody just wrote a review of Conversations on Collapse, and their take on it was that I advocate and firmly believe in the straightforward peak oil collapse narrative. And in the, uh, the conclusion of the book, I actually tell the reader, look, I have this history of uh, adopting and championing narratives and then turning on them and i'm starting to turn on the peak oil collapse narrative it's already happened and yet here i am you know promoting a book that is just the straightforward presentation of the peak oil collapse narrative so it's an odd position to be in for me but that's fine
1: i guess my view is that um to some background both my parents are uh, published authors and from early childhood the whole process associated with creating a book and doing these kind of things, and particularly formal publishing, which really doesn't exist anymore. I wanted to touch on that a little bit with you as well. Um, Because I really, uh, I mean, my father and I too, I mean, we write academic um, texts, and academic publishing kind of is going on and doing its own thing kind of in its last staggers. Um, And I have, I guess, the luxury or perhaps the the anti-luxury of being asked to write chapters occasionally for academic texts which in large part is is quite, um, well, quite mind-numbing and really quite distressing. Uh, but in contrast to that, I really like the whole uh, feeling of self-publishing. I think it's far more like what I saw. Um, certainly my mother has published fiction uh, as well as non-fiction, but when she published a children's book, you know, the kind of energy that came out through that, and I certainly am 100% behind this whole notion that being uh, doing book tours and getting out there and talking and these kind of things is the best possible embodiment of a book. Can you talk a little bit about self-publishing? Can you talk a little bit about, um, firstly, how you're doing it, for folks listening in that are interested in self-publishing, some of your background thinking on self-publishing, and what kind of got you to this critical point of actually putting all the collections together in a, in a book and editing it and putting it out in, in a book form?
0: Well, I have to thank... Dimitri Orlov, really, for, for paving the way. You know, he was a, a published author with, an, with a publisher, um, with New Society, and he, his experiences led him into self-publishing, and I very much replicated his model right down to using the exact printer that he used, you know, Whitehall Printing in Florida, and most of the people who are the interviewees in my book you know, are published authors with established publishers, and I have heard them just sort of kvetch off the record about how frustrating it is. Mm. And I'm just a, a cantankerous, anti-authoritarian person by nature, and having a publisher seems a lot like having a boss. And well, I it's wasn't even really worse in than the having position. a boss.
1: It's even worse yeah. than having a boss. It's like having a... Um, it's like having a... Not even a disconnected parent... It's more like you're in boarding school and you've got, like, the schoolmaster that demands you to do something and then beats you once you've done it. So there's some kind of strange kind of self-flatulation process where you've just put all your effort and all your energy and all your creative, um, you know, id into this thing. And then they say, we can't be bothered doing any promotion for it. We're going to charge $180 for it. Uh, We're basically relegating your thoughts and your intellectual being into this thing which is so repugnant to you that you have to really go through some kind of personal deconstruction. And I think uh, publishing is quite literally eating itself, as is the whole notion of agency. All this kind of stuff is just uh, like bizarro old world media going in like its own spiral down. But extracting from it the really positive emotions, it's interesting that you mention Whitehall. Um, it looks like I may use either Space or Lulu, but I've opted against, I mean, giving, giving um, credit back to your old employer, um, I opted against uh, doing uh, a Whitehall-like method and going for something that was electronic and um, considerably... Um, well, considerably more automated and uh, minimising any kind of upfront cost for me. Can you talk a little bit about Whitehall specifically and why you selected them in particular?
0: I selected them because Dmitry Orlov selected them. Uh, He is an engineer and he is a detail-oriented person and I am not. And I trusted that he would do better research on finding the best balance of um, reliability and affordability. He would do a better job of it than I would terms of upfront costs, I ran a Kickstarter campaign. And so supporters of the c podcast put up the money to have the book printed. And I have sent off the promised backer rewards to all of those people. And I still have nearly a thousand copies of the book in my possession, which essentially I got for free. I mean, I had to you know, create the book, but in terms of paying for the printing, that's done. And I didn't have to come up with the money. So um, also very much in line with my quitting my job, going the self-publishing route wasn't so much a declaration of principles. I just didn't have publishers knocking at my door saying, please, KMO, write a book so that we can publish it. You know, I had a book in the works, and when it was done and ready to be printed, I, I used the means at my disposal to get it printed, and that was the self-publishing route that somebody else had worked out in advance, and I just copied their model.
1: I guess my, my experience with regards to what you're describing... Um, For example, I mean, I've only ever used it with regards to music, um, having CDs pressed, is that the physical CDs and holding the physical CDs then after a period of time become gifts and then after a period of time become stocking stuffers and ways... (laughs) And the problem with regards to actually physically holding the production is slightly distinct from the process where with something like Lulu or create space where all this is automated, although obviously they take a portion of the cost. Um, I'm not really the, the money part of it is of limited interest to me. The thing that interests me is whether there are like-minded people. And I'm also interested in this cyclical, uh, promotions model, which works very well with podcasts. You and I have very distinctly different, uh, although ultimately getting the information out there and getting the information out there free to listeners, uh is, is very central you and i still have distinctly different methods um for example i i don't collect any money through anything that i do with podcasts in fact exactly the opposite um i make sure uh that i do things like you know 10 gifts and things like that associated with it and i've always i mean perhaps some of the wage slave elements of my life are to construct this notion that it is a gift enterprise that I'm doing in my hobby and also frame it very heavily as a hobby, um, particularly for, you know, critical uh, assessment of of others. Uh, You, however, have taken very much the PBS model in terms of the notion that the listeners are very much part of your show in terms of the donations that they provide and in terms of maintaining the show in in a financial way. Um, certainly, I think in our first conversation, our first candid conversation, we had some discussion associated with this because, um, I mean, my my view with regards to podcasting is that if there was any cost fact association with it, that it would become wearing. But for you, it's all, I mean, it appears to be anyway through the way you construct your podcast, almost being invigorating in terms of the thanking people for their donations and these kind of things. I mean, from your perspective, when you came to podcasting, did you see that there were at least two distinct ways to do it and you opted for the PBS model, or do you think that podcasting, as you found it, very much adopted the the PBS model?
0: I copied the model that was present when I entered podcasting. Uh, When I first got into podcasting, I've said this many places, many times, there were three podcasts that really inspired me to get started. They were The Dopecast the Viking Youth Power Hour, and the Psychedelic Salon. And both the dopecast and the Psychedelic Salon, independent of one another, had struck upon the PBS model of soliciting donations and then thanking people for making those donations. And if it were left to me, I mean, if I didn't accept donations, there might come a time when I couldn't pay the monthly hosting fees. And the Cerebral podcast would disappear, not because I stopped doing it, but because I couldn't afford to host it.
1: Mm. That's an interesting, Um, I mean, if we could stop there. I, initially I optimised against any cost, and the way that I've done that is use the Internet Archive for hosting. Uh, And I did that quite intentionally early on, particularly as my numbers grew, because I could see the potential for this being some kind of profit motive for some unscrupulous ISP, Libsyn et al., And I really like the idea that what I'm creating is something which is eternal, fundamentally, or at least will live on beyond me, ideally. Um, And I see that very much in the Internet Archive, although obviously I keep my own copies and these kind of things if the Internet Archive were to ever collapse. But um, the thing that struck me with Lorenzo, I think um, I've been podcasting Formally, since 2006, since March 2006, I would have gotten in a lot earlier, but I just had like anal audio quality issues, which I probably should have you know, removed from my persona earlier. But um, when I came to podcasting, I came to it very much from the open source persuasion, which meant, um, firstly, I have a really strong aversion to the IRS, um, and I have a really strong aversion to anything that would be flagged by the IRS as additional... Um, declared income. And certainly following the folks that have tried either the PBS model or um, the uh, paid-for-content model, where literally they have a firewall or a wall up, you get the free podcast, plus if you pay, you get additional content. The podcasts that have been successful at doing that. I'd seen one collapse because of an IRS investigation. So I have a very... But initially, my concern was... Um, This also came, because I came to the US, I worked probably seven different jobs in the first year that I was in the US, and I paid a phenomenal amount in tax, Uh, and I realised that basically the IRS was designed to uh, almost stifle um, piecemeal innovation, uh, (laughs) fundamentally, Uh, and I was really quite concerned when I set up the podcasts that I didn't want anything that could be taken down by an IRS audit. Um, so that was what motivated my decision. My frustration with regards to uh, Lorenzo initially was that he was so hamstrung by his hosting. I think Bruce Damer has recently, based very heavily on my narrative and my prompting, moved all of Lorenzo's uh, prior podcasts onto the Internet Archive. And my hope is, particularly because Lorenzo is at a stage in his life when you know he's on a pension and what have you, um, I you know it just irks me that he will be exploited by any internet service provider. So thankfully, I think now I'm not sure if it's going to be phased over or what have you, but I think uh, he's now um, exclusively on the Internet Archive. I hope so. Anyway, um, so I guess that's my background. And certainly, when I came to podcasting, there were, um, as you describe, maybe not three, maybe half a dozen podcasts that I listened to. One of which was Podcast Four One One. Um, and there was a long narrative, and um, I own uh, Rob Walsh's book, uh, but also a narrative that I was a part of, associated with the direction that podcasting was going, and particularly with regards to the podcast networks, their high capitalization initially, the fact that they didn't put any money back into podcasting, and that there were all these kind of vampire industries that were developing a situation where people had to move into the PBS model if they were going to zero some of their podcasts. Um, so I, I guess my... But I've stated my view very strongly here with regards to the podcasting model. I I think your model is phenomenal, uh, more power to you. I'm not uh, against the PBS model. I guess my only concern with the PBS model is that, um, f- for me personally, the relationship that I have with my listeners is really very important, and I think it's important for what you do as well. Because I know things are hard for people the world over, and things have been hard for me since, you know, before I started podcasting. I feel that uh, people's ability to up the, the even 3 5 10 dollars uh, can make a substantial difference in people's lives. I mean you have you know a good number of people that donate to you on a regular basis and do you feel that through that donation they are actually better listeners, more contributive listeners, do they send you email frequently? What in terms of the PBS model do you see that building a community as well?
0: Uh, In terms of the donations, not so much. I mean, I don't hear from the people. It's rare that somebody sends me money and then they think that, you know, now they have a voice on the podcast and uh, they have some right to my time or something. Typically, the people who are most generous with their donations, the only communication I get from them is via PayPal saying, so-and-so has donated this amount of money. And you have obviously given this issue a lot more thought than I have. I, you know, I just adopted the model that I saw other people using when I got into podcast and it has worked for me. So I've just taken the, uh, you know, lived by the maxim: if it's not broke, don't fix it. And to me, it doesn't seem to be broken. So I'm, I'm just continuing with what's worked thus far.
1: I hope this is going to be the first of many conversations that we have. Um, is there I don't anything- see that it could be. <laughs> is, there, is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about?
0: I, I don't think it could be the first of many conversations because it's not the first. We've had
1: others. <laughs> true, true. Within this podcast, I'd like to invite you back on. So, oh, you're right. This is the first within this podcast of what I hope would be many, many following conversations in this podcast. And I'm I'm always humbled when I appear on the Sea Realm. So maybe once I've sent you this book, and maybe after you've perused through it a little bit, maybe if I if I could be a guest again on the Sea Realm, I I promise to be more accommodating um, and hopefully be a, a returning guest in the future on the Sea Realm.
0: You haven't been blackballed. <laughs> there, there are a lot of guests that I enjoyed having on and intended to invite back and just never got around to it and Very just fall into that category. Art-teasing.
1: Anyway, so in framing this conversation as it may conclude uh, in the next few minutes, or if you have a topic of discussion that you want to continue with, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, do you, you know, what more would you like to talk? About? Well, I don't know. Do you like zombie movies? This is an interesting phenomenon, actually, because I think the the nature of zombie movies is—I um, mean, I think it's part of like a continued description. I think—I I mean, I think of zombie movies as basically—I don't necessarily think Tolkien is was a good author, but I think he was able to describe a phenomena uh that existed a historical phenomena in something completely removed from the context of that phenomena. Uh through creating this fantasy element. And I see the same with regards to the zombie genre. That actually it's describing a variety of social phenomena embodied in the film state. This is like Zombie One O One. Um Having said that, um have I seen any zombie movies recently? Uh there was there have been a couple I'm um I have a series of YouTube channels I watch that ebb and flow uh, into zombie-related stuff. But I haven't... I'm trying to think what the last zombie movie is. A lot of them... I, I prefer my zombie movies dark, and they tend to have solid comedic elements. Um, what, what are your zombie... what are your current zombie favourites?
0: Well, right now I am reading the graphic novels of The Walking Dead that's a long-running comic book that is going to be adapted. It has been adapted and will be premiering uh, on Halloween this year on the AMC network. It was developed by Frank Darabont, who was the director of The Green Mile and The Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And the source material is so good, so I have really high hopes for this. Um, if you haven't read it, I would very much recommend World War Z by Max Brooks. Certainly and if you yes. don't have time to read it, then the audiobook is astounding. They got just amazing actors to read the book. So if you can lay your hands on a copy of the audio version of World War Z by Max Brooks, I'd give it my highest recommendation. I saw um, Resident Evil Afterlife just recently in 3D in the theater. It is silly, and um, the zombie element is is negligible. I mean, the zombie apocalypse is just the backdrop that is not even explored. It's just the setting for this action adventure piece. Um, other zombie stuff that's in my head right now. You know, I loved, and technically speaking, not zombies, but um, 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later. Certainly, yeah. And I think the zombie, apod- oh, I saw just recently a film called Colin, which is a very low-budget oh, yes. British zombie yes. film where it follows a zombie. Through various little scenarios and, and vignettes.
1: Yeah, are you familiar with Are you familiar with the kind of subgenre of British zombie movies?
0: Tell me more about it. I've only seen two British zombie movies that I can think of, and one of them was terrible.
1: <laughs> well, this this may be the point. I I'm not. I mean, I I I guess in my general viewing, I, I watch more gangster-related movies, and there is very much a British gangster uh, movie phenomenon which I will sit through probably more than, for example, my wife would sit through. Um, But what interests me with regards to the British gangster reinterpretation is it is very unique. It is not The Sopranos. It is very much associated with um, typically uh, a London uh, kind of East End mentality, which is so rich and so vibrant and has its own comedic force that it really is a distinct genre. British zombie films um seem to you know, you're testing me here in terms of names, but it seems to be more associated with almost like class struggle and um there's always an element of militarism which comes through American zombie films as well so I'm trying to think what makes uk zombie films unique the density of population in the uk is very different and i think because it's not really i mean i Again, I probably have seen two or three, although um, I've seen probably more comedic UK zombie movies, but there are serious... Well, serious UK. Low-budget but non-comedic zombie movies uh, based in the UK um, that I think define the genre. Now you're really testing me with regards to names. Um, There
0: was one called Zombie Diaries that I actually purchased at Walmart, sight unseen. mm Mm-hmm. And it was bad. Mm (laughs) You know, there's this... um, this phenomenon of the zombies have been speeding up over the years, and you know, with remakes of Dawn of the Dead, uh, the slow, shambling zombies of George Romero's film have been replaced with Olympic sprinters and acrobats as zombies. Hmm. And in uh, the zombie diaries, these were the slowest zombies ever. Typically, they didn't even move. They just stood there. And I, I wondered if perhaps it was because their zombie makeup would fall off <laughs> if they were to take a step. But, so why do you uh, like
1: zombie films, particularly?
0: Well, I think that any reason I give would be an after-the-fact rationalization. I've just been fascinated with them since I first saw Dawn of the Dead, the Mm -hmm. original. In one respect, this is something I've said elsewhere, but might be new to your listeners. In the zombie apocalypse, inevitably what happens in these films is that most of the human population around the central characters becomes the threat. And yet there are a few people that the protagonist instantly recognizes as being still human and therefore their natural ally and collaborator. And yet there's lots of tension. There's ideological tension. And I really like this in the films of George Romero. There's racial tension between the survivors who have banded together for mutual benefit and support. And yet there's still some recognition, some instant recognition that Suddenly, because of some breakdown, all of the people around me that I used to interact with seamlessly are now trying to consume me and eat me. And yet I can see that there are a few other people who are like me, and we are instantly going to pool resources and depend on one another's skills. And that happens. And, you know, you mentioned the differences between UK and American zombie films. And you say there's a certain militarism in American zombie films. You know, the American population compared to the British population is very well armed. Mm. So you're going to have options for a different sort of response to the zombie apocalypse here than you would in the UK.
1: I think it's and- the what you describe with regards to the ability to find people that aren't zombies is the string of hope, which I think is very much a new world phenomena. And this is something that interests me, um well i mean as as you'll see in the stuff that i wrote when i was 17 but also i think very much in terms of the notion that you'll find others that are like you in these kind of circumstances is really almost a false hope i think um i guess i am legend i'm trying to think of other films where they never actually find others yeah that i I mean it for, for, for its own reasons has some problems but the thing that struck me about that film, although he doesn't, the end he does find people in it, doesn't he? He
0: I does. Because he, at one point, he completely gives up and he goes to uh, face down the the vampire leader in an unwinnable fight. Yes. And has pretty much relinquished his own life. And it is then that the others appear and you know come
1: to his aid. Yeah. I guess my view is kind of philosophically that the the safety zone of the zombie film I find artificial. I, I Far prefer films where everything turns on the um, the protagonist. Um, and the thing that strikes me with zombie films is that that you know there is. You, I mean, it's the anticipation of the happy ending, which I think is kind of quintessentially American cinema. That really kind of concerns me with that element of zombie films. That you know pretty well that the fact that there are at least a few other humans out there means that this person does have some degree of hope. And I think perhaps outside the US, and perhaps the people within the US embrace this idea more, the notion that there may actually be no hope, and embracing the no hope and understanding how to deal with the no hope may be a more interesting film than this notion that there are actually other humans out there who haven't actually become zombies. The thing that interests me um, is the idea of literally being completely isolated and i think maybe that is what i see with regards to these gangster films more so that the the, that the every every interaction is really justified by a series of elements that can collapse very rapidly and maybe from my own experience i just see that more in in kind of realistic terms um i mean do you see the hope in zombie films through the fact that there are still surviving humans is this something that you know resonates with your description
0: Well, I think of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and the film ends, well, the bulk of the film is this group of characters has abandoned the fight against the zombies, decided to just run and make the best of it for themselves, and they take refuge in a shopping mall. And while they're there, they, they've cleared out the zombies, they've secured the shopping mall, and then they just lose themselves in the pleasures of consumerist society. You know, They go and they take all the money out of the cash registers and they play high-stakes poker and they dress up in nice clothes and they just really enjoy themselves. Yes. And at the end of the film, that all breaks down and they have to flee and one of them is killed You know, in the flight and then they get up onto the roof into the helicopter and they have no gas. I mean, they've got enough fuel to get up off the roof and some unknown distance away from them all, but they have no prospects, really. They've discovered that the the only other survivors out there are predatory and are likely to kill them, and zombies are everywhere, and they are leaving their one secure refuge. And they don't even have the means to go very far from it. So in that one, they, they certainly seem to be flying off from false hope into no hope, and doing so with some measure of equanimity. Uh, I think of the end of 28 weeks later
2: mm.
0: where seemingly the protagonists have escaped this horrible situation but in so doing they have spread the infection to Europe and we see at the very final shot of the film these you know crazy infected people running through uh, underground tunnels and then they emerge onto the street and you see the Eiffel Tower
2: mm.
0: so I certainly see you know the the sort of nihilism that I think you're describing reflected in zombie films. But yeah, at the same time, there is, well, one thing I really like about them is that I think that the, the unit of survival in a societal breakdown is not going to be the individual. I think if it's you against the world, the world is going to win always. It is groups of people. It is local communities Mm. that are going to be the unit of survival and the unit of perpetuating our culture and our, you know, our society and the human project. And that, These things are not going to be formed intelligently in advance. They are going to have to emerge spontaneously as local conditions allow them to. Because, you know, the central authority will not even allow for the uh, discussion of the possibility that central authority will go away. And so you you can't really, you can't choose who your group is going to be in advance unless you're going to be a survivalist and move out into the country with your freeze-dried... You know, meals ready to eat, and your M16s and whatnot. But I, I don't see that as a very workable lifestyle.
1: Well, so. I certainly wouldn't embrace the freeze-dried meals or necessarily <laughs> the M16s. But I certainly think there are ways that one could, um, yeah, you know, move oneself out of uh, an environment if one had to. I, I, yeah, it's it's interesting actually the way that um, yeah the return to community and these kind of things part of your kind of broad project and my sense that those kind of things are, are in some regard completely destructive destroyed by the forces um that you're describing i mean i think the the nature of shuffled communities as they exist currently i mean a point in fact though i'm i also find i mean having experienced uh, you know communes and having experienced parts of the u.s in particular where and the uk as well where people don't move frequently where they've just basically been born, grown up and died, occasionally got off and fought wars and then come back um, to exactly the same areas that they've always been. And I don't find those kind of environments particularly appealing either. Um, This notion of creating a community locally is something that I think... Maybe it just requires, you know, visionaries such as yourself or perhaps more scholarship or more understanding on my part, but I just don't see... I see the notion of alternative culture as as we're providing through podcasts, um, and certainly I see that through you know what you're doing, what Lorenzo's doing, and um, hopefully some of the stuff that I put out there. Um, but I don't see how we then translate that into actual communities, aside from things like Facebook. And the thing that interests me about Facebook in particular is uh, that you can actually generate a sense of hold it, wait, this person that's listening to this podcast also lives in the same relative location to where I am, so you have that kind of strange self-discovery through um, through things like Facebook. Have you experienced that with Facebook?
0: oh, I have a complicated relationship with Facebook. (laughs) I don't much care for it.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
0: But at the same time, everybody uses it.
1: Mm -hmm. There's a lot to hate. I mean, if you choose to hate, there's a lot to hate there. I I would agree wholeheartedly. If we can just
0: bypass that discussion because it's a long one. Okay. Um, But in terms of helping to connect people uh, who are near each other and might not have known that they were near each other if they had similar interests, sure, it does that. And I find that Like now, Facebook wasn't a big part of the Transitional Alchemy Tour. It was mostly done via email and phone. And now, less than a year later, Facebook is central to organizing the tour stops, you know, for the Conversations on Collapse Tour. And everybody who is organizing an event in their town, they're creating a Facebook page for it. And, you know, since everybody's on Facebook, it's just a really good way to get the word out. And, yeah, I think it is facilitating local in the flash meetups
1: so I guess that may be the the emerging technology that answers my concern that through I found this with Lorenzo actually before he had a Facebook presence I created a fans of Lorenzo Haggerty on Facebook which literally I don't know how many people are on there currently but I left it alone I came back and there was something like 300 people on there it was just insane. And I found from that four or five other people that lived in Las Vegas. Now I befriended all those people and explained who I was and none of them responded. (laughs) So, I don't know, with the internal paranoia within that particular community, um, even though I've been very public and actually, I mean, my real name has been used in the psychedelic salon. and My real name is Tom Barbelay, by the way, for folks listening. But um, which meant that when some people have contacted me, I mean, I'm the furthest person from the psychedelic movement in terms of working environment that requires multiple drug testing and background checks and all these kind of things. But I like to think of the, the notion of psychedelia as it's not about pharmacology, it's about psychology, fundamentally. Um, so, yeah, it's a strange thing. I've, I mean, I've tried to embrace wherever possible, but there needs to be some kind of agreed-upon arrangement of contact as well. And maybe what you're doing with these actual physical meetings... Is doing that too? I mean, maybe by not just people getting together on Facebook, but when they actually get together in the flesh, shaking hands, meeting other like-minded folk, and having discussions, following will create this uh, will create this community that you are you are talking about.
0: Well, I hope so. Um, I'm certain that I don't know all the implications of my actions. That uh, things will be coming of of this tour that I have not anticipated or hoped for but will prove uh, pretty meaningful in the the larger picture of my life and probably the lives of some of the people that will attend these events.
1: Wonderful. Well, we're concluding actually with sound effects in the background that is the introduction to your podcast. So um, I'd I'd like to thank you. I mean, I'm I'm mindful that you're out and exposed and hopefully somewhat protected um, from, from the elements, but still enjoying them. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. And please... Whenever you feel the need, maybe once you're done with this tour, if we could have you back on uh, Stone Ape to kind of deconstruct some of these issues, because I know you'll probably talk about it on the Sea Realm, but, uh, you know, I have my own particular interest. Like I said, Aaron has his own interests with regards to this phenomenon and it'd be wonderful to kind of piecemeal deconstruct some of your experiences.
2: Well, Tom, thank you very much for having me on your program. I enjoyed it, and I do look forward to coming back.